Well, a number of years ago now, probably about five or six years ago, Marlene, my wife, thought it would be a good idea for me to start working out. I'm not sure what sort of message she was communicating to me by saying, thinking that. But uh, we both knew a guy who used to be a powerlifting champion. And so she approached him and asked if he'd be interested in training me. So, before I knew what I was in for, I, together with uh, another fellow pastor, had agreed to have this friend train us. He said if we, if we would both come in at the same time, he'd have a good deal for us. He charged us half the price that he normally charges. And he also had a philosophy where he believed that people only needed to train one hour a week. No, we thought that was a pretty good deal, and so away we went. But the very first time I stepped into his gym and saw all the weights and all the equipment, I knew I was in huge trouble. If I thought about it before, I should have known that this one-hour-a-week deal was too good to be true. If it was to have any effect, this one hour a week was going to be one of the worst hours of my week. And that's exactly what happened. My pastor friend and myself pretty much became a source of entertainment for our trainer and for the rest of the bodybuilders there. For some reason, our trainer, who also attended our church, saw his driving us to the point of submission physically as a kind of retribution for what, we, what, he, what he said that we did to him spiritually on Sundays. Well, if you've ever been in a gym like that, you'll know that part of proper gym demeanor is that you never show yourself to be weak. Even if you're completely finished, you still get up and sort of walk away and make like nothing happened. You know, whew. just don't ever show your weakness. Be tough. Well, my friend and I never quite bought into that mindset. We had no false pretenses. We could regularly be seen on the floor of the gym moaning and writhing in pain. We actually had people from our church come to the gym once in a while just to watch us suffer. <laughs> Anyways, I say all that to say that I have some idea of what it's like to be in the presence of power and to feel totally helpless and weak and powerless. Well, as we keep looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark this morning, we'll see what people felt like when they were in the presence of a totally different kind of power. Namely, the power of the Son of God. The power of Jesus himself. We're going to look at three episodes in Jesus' life this morning where he displays his power. But this is not just Jesus showing off. All of these acts of power will teach something to the people affected by his power and to his disciples and to us. Now looking at these three stories, the first one is the story of a storm. We've sung about storms a lot this morning already. But in some ways, all of these three stories are stormy situations. Whether it's in a boat, or whether it's an encounter with demons, or whether it's in the presence of desperation, these are all stories where Jesus meets a storm. 
But not only does Jesus come face to face with a storm, people come face to face with the power of Jesus. They're confronted by Jesus' power. And the reactions of these people are going to teach us something too. At some point, we all have to acknowledge and we all have to understand Jesus' power and Jesus' supremacy. That's really Christianity 101. Will you believe Jesus can do what he says he can do? Will you believe Jesus will do what he says he will do? Will you submit to Jesus' leadership and Jesus' authority? Now, most of us will acknowledge God's power. But the question we want to ask today is, how does God's power apply to us? Well, all these three incidents will tell us that God, that Jesus is ultimately powerful. And that his power does, in fact, affect our lives today. First way it affects our lives is that Jesus' power assures us that he cares. In verse 36, it says, On that day when evening had come. So, so this is still the same day when Jesus had been teaching all those parables in chapter 4 that we talked about if you were here last week. It had been a long day, a, a, a tiring day for Jesus. And so, so he tells his disciples to get him to the other side of the lake where he can be away from, from all these crowds. Jesus was absolutely spent. But he uses this little trip to give us another teaching moment, to give his disciples, really, another moment of instruction. All of a sudden, it says there, a great windstorm arose. This was really a hurricane. The Greek word there is interesting. It's the word seismos, for which we get the word seismic. We've been hearing a lot about that in the last day or so, as people have been talking to all sort of seismologists about the earthquake in Japan. And so it was a, a sudden windstorm that, that sh- actually shook the sea and the boat and everyone inside the boat. Except Jesus, it seems like. Where was Jesus? Even though the boat was all, all really, already filling up, it says there in verse 38, it says that he was in the, in the stern asleep on a cushion. He was in the stern asleep. And so they did what anyone who's in a panic and who's desperate would do. They woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, before we finish this story, which most of you know the ending, let's go over and look back at another story. Turn back to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. And I'm going to read small section of that chapter and see if you can spot any similarities. I'm going to be reading Jonah 1, verses 4 to 6. It says there, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, or a windstorm, on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, or the sailors, were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. 
And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. Why? That we may not perish. Now, it seems like that whole story about Jonah is a lot like what Mark describes to us as happening to Jesus, right to the very words. And so it seems that in some way, Mark is purposely relating this this story, this actual event that's happening in Jesus' life, to the Jonah story. And in Matthew 12, Jesus describes himself as the sign of Jonah and says something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus becomes the true Jonah. So why do I bring that up? Well, we'll get back to that in a minute. The end of the story in Mark 4 is that Jesus wakes up and actually commands the sea. He says, peace, be still. And in an instant, just like an obedient child, the sea obeys. And it says there was a great calm. Now, that never happens in nature. If there's a storm on the lake, it, it, it usually sort of gradually dies down. But here Jesus speaks and the nature, nature obeys instantly. Kind of reminds us again of the creation account in, in Genesis. The first few words of the Bible, God says, let there be light, and there was light. When God speaks, even to nature, it's done, like right now. And so besides everything else that's going on here, Jesus is again making a claim that he is God. He's done that earlier in Mark. But Jesus is teaching something to the observers of this conversation between Jesus and the sea as well, his disciples. He is teaching them that he, that he is God, but he's also teaching them something about who he is in relation to them and how they ought to think of him. Look at verse 40. It says, He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus is exerting his power to give his disciples a lesson about God's care. Remember, that was their question at the beginning. Don't you care that we're perishing? When they said that, if you didn't know the story, you'd think, bad mistake. Now he's really going to let them have it. How dare they think that Jesus doesn't care? But look what happens. Instead of rebuking them, what does he rebuke? He rebukes the wind. Jesus wanted to teach them that storms are the means by which they'll grow in their faith. When storms come, and they will come, they need not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is near to them. Jesus is with them. They, in their still not matured faith, thought that if Jesus really cared for them, he wouldn't let hard things happen to them. And we think the same thing sometimes too, don't we? If God really loved me, if God really cared for me, why would he allow me to go through storms in my life? Sicknesses, financial things, physical things, relational things. But such is the Christian life. There will be trials. But trials are there to help us grow 
and to help us, as we just sang, to depend on God. This story is there to remind us that Christ is there with us. If we are in Christ through faith, united to Him, we need not be afraid. He is for us. He will, he will keep us. This is a testament to the keeping power of Jesus. I love how the benediction in Jude starts out. Now to him who is able, the word there is the same that's used for power. Now to him who is able to keep you, keep us from stumbling. Jesus is in the boat. Yet even after Jesus assured them, it says that they were filled with great fear. First they were afraid. Then Jesus sends a great calm. But now they have a great fear. See, they just didn't understand his love and his care. And, and, and they're now afraid of who this Jesus really is. They start to figure out that they're really in the presence of God. But they don't understand yet his, his nearness and his love and his care. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this Jesus? Well, back to the Jonah story. It's interesting that this story has the exact same words, that they were exceedingly afraid. It says that part too. just keeps on going. In similarity. Everything in this story is the same except the ending. In the Jonah story, Jonah tells the sailors there to, to do what? To throw them overboard. And as soon as they do that, the sea is calm. But if you think about it, is it really different in Mark? If you skip ahead, way to the end of Mark's gospel, way to the end of Jesus' life, it actually turns out to be not so different. What happens to Jesus? Back in Jonah, Jonah is the one who suggests that they throw him out into the stormy seas. But Jesus also willingly gets thrown into, as, as Tim Keller puts it, the ultimate storm. Under the ultimate waves of sin and death. The only storm that threatens to ultimately sink the boat that is our life is the storm of God's wrath and God's anger. But Jesus got thrown into the storm instead of us. And even though we still face storms, we will not sink because we are now by faith united with Jesus in his death and raised up with him to newness of life. Once you understand that, you will never again doubt that God cares for you. Nothing will be able to separate you from his presence and from his love. Well, there's a second benefit of God's power which you can see in the, in the next display. And that is that Jesus' power reminds us that he transforms. He has the, the power to radically change people. In the beginning of Mark 5, we have Jesus and his disciples arriving now at the other side in the Sea of Galilee after this stormy night. And even though he got rid of the windstorm, he's about to meet up with a different kind of storm. They had just barely stepped out of the boat when verse 2 says, Immediately... There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Verses 2 to 5 describe that man. 
says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That's a graphic description of degradation and filth. He lives among the tombs. Even though he's alive, he lives around the dead. He's like a wild animal, unable to be held down. Even when they do get him chained up, he breaks the chains. He's loud, and he cuts himself with stones. What a sight. He's a, he's a bloody mess. People would have looked the other way when they saw him. He was uncontrollable. He was dangerous. And on top of all that, he looked disgusting. Not only did he look awful, this description was a picture of total uncleanness. That area of the Gerasenes was a mix of, of Jew and Gentiles, but Jewish religion was pretty much gone. It had disappeared. Later on in the story, we'll read about pig herdsmen. For any Jew, any contact with pigs and swine and pork was forbidden, according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And, being possessed, and besides being possessed by an unclean spirit, he lived among the tombs. Well, Jewish law prohibited any contact with the dead, according to Numbers 9. So the verdict for this man? Unclean. One commentator describes the scene well. He said that he had an unclean spirit, lived among unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean jobs in unclean Gentile territory. People should have stayed away from him. Yet Jesus doesn't run. He comes into contact with the uncleanness and deals with it. He speaks to the demons and he tells them to come out. And one more time, when Jesus speaks, the demons obey. Even though there are multiple demons in this one man, they're under the authority of the one God-man, Jesus. Jesus sends them into the pigs, and the pigs run over the cliff and drown. But the rest of the story, verses 14 to 20, give the response to all this. The news travels fast. And before you know it, everyone's crowded around Jesus again. And the first thing they see is this previously wild, uncontrollable, naked, filthy man. But notice the transformation. Verse 15, he was no longer screaming and terrorizing the area. It says he was sitting there. He was clothed and he was in his right mind. This, my friends, is the power of of Jesus. As humans, we don't have to be unclean and filled with demons to get to this point. This is a picture of the wretchedness of our sin in God's eyes. We need to really see ourselves in this man. The transformation Jesus does for this man describes the transformation that God does for all of us when we come into contact with Jesus. And when we come into contact with his kindness, that leads us to repentance and to put our faith in him.
Just like that man, sin has distorted and has marred the image of God in us. But through Jesus, we can be restored to that image. This reminds us that Jesus came to transform people from wretched sinners into repenting sinners who can be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. But it all depends on how we see and how we understand Jesus. Do you notice what the people do here? What they think of Jesus? Verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from that region. If you're here today and are not a Christian, don't toss away Jesus. Repent of your sins and receive Him by faith. Now I know there are some of you in this room that might think your sins are too awful. You might think that you're just way too far gone to be accepted by Jesus. You might think that you're too filthy. You might think that you can't ever change or that nothing can change you. But let this story encourage you that Jesus can totally transform you. His power can deliver you. Trust Him. For my Christian brothers and sisters, you too need to learn from the response of this man. The people beg Jesus to leave, but you notice that this man begs too? Only in verse 18 there, he begs to be with Jesus. He wants to learn from Jesus. He wants to sit at Jesus' feet. He, he wants to be a disciple. That should be our response. At this point of time, though, God had a bigger mission for the man. He wants him to go home to his friends and, and he says, tell him how much the Lord has done for you. And he obeyed and And then in verse 20, it says he began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him. He too obeys. Jesus left the region. Goes back to the other side at the request of these people. But his message, his proclamation, don't leave. They stayed right there. The gospel stayed through this man as he talked about the fact that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe well there's one more story and this is actually two stories wrapped into one and and through this episode we'll see that Jesus' power also encourages us that he alone can be trusted if you've been with us during the series in Mark you've seen that Mark sometimes sandwiches stories in order to make a point and he does that here again this one starts with a request from a synagogue ruler named Jairus to heal his dying daughter And it ends with Jesus' healing of that daughter. But in the middle, there's another display of God's power to a sick woman. This incident starts with Jesus on the move again, back to the other side of the sea. And when he gets there, he's met by, you guessed it, another huge crowd. And a synagogue ruler comes and falls at the feet of Jesus, just like the unclean man in the last story. Now, the last time Jesus was in a synagogue, it was back in chapter 3 of Mark, right at the beginning, and it didn't go so well. In fact, they wanted to, they started to plot to kill Jesus. And so to have a ruler now of the synagogue fall at the feet of Jesus can only tell us that this man was completely desperate. And so he begs Jesus to come and lay your hands on his daughter so that she may be well and live. 
And Jesus goes with him. To be continued. While on the way to his house, the crowd starts growing, and there are people everywhere. And then Mark here describes a woman. This woman had been sick for 12 years with, as verse 25 says, a discharge of blood. A discharge of blood. But she's not only suffering with her sickness, we read, but she's also now broke because she spent all her money trying to get cured with no success. In fact, it says that it got worse. She had heard about Jesus too and thought, if I just touch him, maybe I'll get healed. And it turns out that she was right. She touches his garment and the blood issue was over, just like that. This time, Jesus actually heals without a word. But Jesus doesn't just keep on making his way to the girl's house, or to Jairus' house, with, with the dying girl there. Look at verse 29. For she said, verse 29, and, and, uh, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So this woman was healed physically, but she still hadn't been healed. Jesus knew power had gone out from him. He he feels weakened. And in his being weakened, he has made someone else well. You just think about those words. And it's just another foreshadowing of the cross, isn't it? Only here, Jesus willingly became weak and died so that those who believe would become the righteousness of God in him. And here in this story, power has gone out of Jesus and into this woman. But Jesus, again, is also teaching a lesson here. This woman, for some reason, was a bit superstitious. If I just touch him. But Jesus is interested in more than just making her better. He wants her to follow him. And he wants his followers, all of his followers, those that are healed from their sin sickness, which is all of us, to make a public profession of their faith. And so he keeps looking around at who touched him until she comes in fear and trembling and tells, says, tells the whole truth. She makes public what she thought she could keep private. And that's what Jesus wants. To follow Jesus doesn't just mean getting your needs met. That's not what it's all about. To be a true disciple of Jesus is to encounter Jesus and to be known by him and to to bow down before Jesus, submitting to him as your king, submitting to him as your Lord. So only now does Jesus say, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. But if you think about it, you need to remember who else has been anxiously watching this whole encounter with the woman. Who is it? Jairus. 
His daughter is on the verge of death. And here Jesus stops and talks to this woman. Tim Keller again points out that if if this were a hospital emergency room and Jesus was a doctor, what Jesus did here would be malpractice. This woman had an acute condition. She needed acute care. She was about to die and yet Jesus deals with someone who has a chronic condition. She's had this condition for 12 years. Jairus must have been thinking, what are you doing? But at the same time, probably after he saw what happened to the woman, he must have had hope that Jesus could do something for his daughter. But then, tragedy. Some people come along and say, your daughter is dead. No sense Jesus coming anymore. Now I imagine that that had to be a tense moment. Why did Jesus stop? If only... That must have been what Jairus was thinking. But before anyone could say anything, Jesus tells Jairus, do not fear, only believe. It seems like the story of the woman was there to teach Jairus something. Jesus may just have delayed so that Jairus would take his focus off his daughter and put it first on the power of Jesus. Jesus wanted Jairus to believe, to be totally dependent on Jesus, just like the woman was. He wanted Jairus to have that kind of faith. And because of that delay, Jairus would actually get more than he even asked for. He came to Jesus for a healing, but now he would need to believe for a resurrection. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus can be trusted. And so when they get to the house and they get past all the people around the house, all those mourners that had been hired, Jesus looks at everyone and says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Odd. And then he goes in and he takes the girl by the hand and says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl arise. Basically, and put it into modern day language, basically like saying, honey, wake up. Well, she was definitely dead. She's not just sleeping. But Jesus was telling the people in that room, and he's telling you today in this room, that when Jesus has you in his hand, when you are united to Christ through faith, through belief, through trust in him, and, through, and in his power, then death is really nothing but a nap. And when you open your eyes after that nap that we call death, just like that little girl, you will see Jesus. So God's power really means everything for us. And God's power has been revealed in his Son. The question that remains for all of us is, what will we do with Jesus? Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this that has this kind of power? He calmed the storm to assure us of his constant presence. He delivered a wretched man from unclean spirits to remind us of how he can radically transform lives. And he healed a woman and a girl to remind us that in our desperation, we can trust him. In these stories, 
Some rebuked him. Others wanted to send him away. What will you do? Jesus came to this earth to reveal God's power. And he has come to you today through his word, through the gospel of Mark as as it's come to you. If you already believe, he's calling you to follow him. He's calling you to be his disciple. Even through and in whatever storms you've got going on in your life right now. Trust in his power. Think about how much he has already done for you and and then trust him for future grace. Or if you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ, this is telling us, has the power to save you, to rescue you from the powers of hell, and to raise you up to new life. If you are in a state of desperation right now because you've suddenly seen your sins, seen that you could not keep God's law, and you fear for what will happen to you when you die, these stories are here to show you that there is indeed hope for you. The disciples and the man with the unclean spirits and Jairus and the woman had all given up hope on a human level. But they all found hope in the power of Jesus. You can have that same kind of hope as well. Hope is found when you trust in Jesus alone and his living the perfect life that you should have lived and, his, and in his dying the death that you should have died because you could not keep his law. Turn from your sins today and trust in what He has done for you. He is indeed mighty to save. Let's pray.